This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 17th, 2017. Not going to get tripped up by two 17s in a row. I'm pretty good. In fact, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The president would like us to debate statuary aesthetics or a tall tale about a long dead general and if that tale could possibly work to thwart modern day malefactors. Now keep this in mind. The original action plan is somewhat akin to this. Take your hero, dip him in the river sticks, hold by the heel. But no, 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 I refuse. I refuse to be sucked in by those tweets to go off on those wild goose chases to fact check those distractions. They're purposeful distractions. The only debate should still be about the president's racism and his failure to condemn the Klan and neo-Nazis. Let us not backtrack or get sidetracked. I'm not going to get sucked in, nor should you, debating bullets dipped in pig's blood coated with succubus dust cast in goblins sputum. Nope, nope, focus. So yesterday we played, is the president a smart racist or stupid racist? Retroactive spoiler alert, stupid one. You know, is he really a racist? Well, of course he is, but I say it actually doesn't matter. You'll, you'll hear Morning Joe say, some other people, oh, I knew him back when, and Donald Trump's not a racist, and Trump himself, of course, denies it, but this is why it doesn't matter. There's no fixed definition of racist, but really, as the man with the most power in the world, it doesn't matter if a subjective label can be applied to you. What matters is what you do. Maybe you are a racist, have some racist tendencies or thoughts, but then what if you sign the most sweeping civil rights legislation in a century? Lyndon B. Johnson. Maybe you're a racist by today's standards, but you're Abe Lincoln. Read the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He never argued for equality. It's what you do that matters. Let's put aside the label of what you are. Look at what you do. And of course, with Trump, we conclude racist policies, racist rhetoric, racist outcomes. So then the question is, well, how's he even saying he's not a racist? Does he really believe that? How could you explain that? It could be a lie. It could be delusion. But I think, I think it's something more like this. It's dopamine. Donald Trump has always acted in interactions in the way that will make him feel the best about himself at that moment. So if he's cordial or even kind to a black person, it's because acting that way in the moment served him. Or take homophobia. I'd say he has exhibited less anti-gay animus than most 71-year-old American men. But that doesn't matter because he used homophobia as a life preserver when he enacted his trans ban in the military. But here's the, here's the part. The reason that he even thinks of himself as pro-gay or defines himself that way is that for most of his life, he's lived in Manhattan circles and tried to impress celebrities. He never seriously thought about minority issues or gay issues. He just acted, however, was the easiest way to act in that moment to get approval in that moment. So when the mob came for the Central Park Five, he called them guilty and he said they should be executed. When most middle-class developers in the 1970s thought you needed to exclude black people to rent properties, he redlined them. But when he hobnobbed 
with C-list and then worked his way up to B-list celebrities. He set aside the outright ugliness. He had no real stance. He underwent no real introspection. He just did what he did in the moment to get rewarded and approval. And that is what he's doing now. It's the difference between amoral and immoral. Trump specifically, amoral plus incompetent. And that's the combo that so far has saved society from him. On the show today, a brief spiel about North Korea policy. But first, a long discussion about a man who today was quoted talking about the U.S.'s military options with North Korea, executive branch staffing, and white nationalism. The man is Steve Bannon. His positions are, there are no military options. I'm on that staffing. I'm against white nationalism. But how long will Steve Bannon last? That is a question they've been asking about him and certain species of mold for quite a while now. Yesterday on this show, I said of Steve Bannon that uh, racism was the demon wind beneath his gargoyle wings. Maybe I was thinking of the book Devil's Bargain. It is written by Joshua Green. Its subtitle is Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Hello, Josh. Good to be with you. Steve Bannon's listed first. Trump didn't like that, did he? No, no. Th- this is a, <laughs> Literally. a subject of great consternation. <laughs> yeah, that Bannon's name comes before Trump's on the title. So overshadowing um, the shadowy leader is something that is verboten. And yet today, here we have Steve Bannon going out on his own, it would seem, doing an interview with uh, Robert Kuttner of The American Prospect. Uh, maybe putting his job on the line by doing a couple things that you would think would piss off his boss, like kind of pretending he's the president and talking, Bannon talking about uh, all the personnel decisions that he was making. And another thing that he did is he seemed to undercut Donald Trump in terms of uh, North Korea strategy, just admitting there is no military solution, thus undercutting the fire and fury remarks. What do you think is going on here? What's Bannon's play? I think. I don't think it's a Bannon play. I think Bannon called up Bob Kuttner because uh, that's what Bannon does. When he reads an article that he thinks is intriguing, he'll reach out out of the blue and call the guy up and start talking to him. That's how I met Bannon. And I think that Bannon foolishly assumed that Kuttner wasn't a journalist. He was more of a think tank guy or, or, or what have you. But he read Kuttner, who's the editor of this journal. He, this is what I've gotten from people around Bannon okay. last night and today, that he thought Kuttner was more of a think tank guy who might be interested in joining a kind of a left-right hawkish coalition against China, and he was trying to kind of conscript him into that project, um, not thinking that Kuttner would do what any self-aware journalist would do, which is turn around and publish the interview, yeah. uh, because Bannon had never you know, thought to say, hey, this is off the record. And you'd think in the, in the post-Scaramucci era that that would be something that everybody understands they need to do, but Bannon evidently did not. Wait, so the conception I have of Bannon through your book more than anything else, Savvy Operator, you're really buying that he just screwed up on the record, off the record? Yeah, totally. No, wow. I, I don't think I don't think he thought of Kuttner as like a traditional journalist. Like if he'd called up me or if he called up somebody from Slate or The New York Times or The Post, I think he would have prefaced it with off the record. But I think that he viewed Kuttner as a potential ideological ally 
uh, which was wrong and foolish, mm-hmm. um, and just didn't have his guard up for whatever reason. I mean, Bannon is a savvy guy and a, and a smart thinker in a lot of ways, but he's also somebody who's still new to being an actual political consultant in an administration. I mean, he was the, you know, YOLO bomb throwing conservative publisher before this, who never had to give a thought to what he said, whether or not it was on the record. And he's gotten, you know, more careful about it, especially since he got hazed by Trump back in February for having too high a profile. But he's, you know, he's not a guy that works through the White House press shop and negotiates this thing. I mean, as Kuttner tells the story, you know, Bannon's assistant called up and was like, hey, my boss wants to talk to you. Will you hop on the phone? And Kuttner said, sure. And they were, you know, off and running. I think Bannon's Machiavellian reputation has gotten out over the skis of mm-hmm. his actual capacities as a Machiavellian figure. And he screws up like anybody else and did so in this case, even if he's pretending now that he didn't. And this was all some clever 3D chess ploy. That's good because I was thinking 3D chess. I didn't know what to believe. But if you believe that he knew what he was doing and he thought his remarks would be printed, Bannon knows that Donald Trump hates to be contradicted. And I was kind of worrying that by him saying there's no military solution in North Korea, forget it until somebody solves the part of the equation that shows me 10 million people in Seoul don't die in the first 30 minutes from conventional weapons. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no military solution here. I said to myself, well, okay, that's good. He's reasonable. And then I said, wait a minute. Or maybe he knows that Trump hates to be put in a box. Maybe he's kind of goading Trump into a military solution. Don't worry that much, you're no, saying. No, Ben is right, by the way. Can, we, can, we, just, right. can yeah. we just stipulate that? Yes. He's absolutely right that it's insane to think that there's a military solution in North Korea that won't kill 10 million people in the first 10 minutes. And the fact that he seems disturbed by that is heartening, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this. This here, here's the thing that I've learned about Bannon in our talks. You know, for all that he cultivates this image of himself as you know crazed political Voldemort or whatever, whatever his little thing is, um, he is a pretty astute thinker on most issues, including foreign policy and economics and things like that. He gets way too worked up over issues like the supposed threat of radical Islam and the supposed menace of undocumented. I mean, there, there, there are places where he just gets batty and, and, and kind of loses his cool. But on issues, especially like foreign policy like this, he, he's a pretty sharp guy. You know, he served in the military. I think he has an understanding of uh, what is at stake in a way that some think tank chicken hawk in Washington, D.C., who's all whipped up on the idea of war and projecting strength, Uh, you know, who might have served in George W. Bush's administration wouldn't have. Okay. And what about the parts of the uh, interview he gave to Kuttner where he says, ethno-nationalism, it's losers, it's a fringe element. I think the media plays it up too much and we got to help crush it, you know, help crush it more. So is that him trying to get in good with Kuttner? No, he says says that nobody's really picked up on this in the book. There's a footnote. I even know what page it's on because I looked it up this morning to look at page 145. Okay. One of the lines of discussion that Ben and I had for this book was, well, look, you know, you've made common cause with these racists and anti-Semites and white supremacists. How can you at the same time claim not to be one of them or whatever? And he, he, you know, we were talking about Richard Spencer in particular. He calls Spencer a freak yeah. and a goober. Yeah. You know, so this is perfectly in line with what he told Kuttner about these guys are clowns and whatever. The comparison he made to me was, 
You know, Bannon is really big into like 40s, 50s movies. Remember the movie F Troop? This kind of bumbling group the, the of TV commandos. show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ken that, Barry. That, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. He says the, uh, that he rival thinks Indian tribe was the Hakawi. Exactly. He thinks of the racists and the and the alt right guys as basically being like his political F Troop. These yeah. you know idiots that he marches out to the front line to get the masses all whipped up that he can cynically manipulate. That's exactly what he's doing. I mean, he came out and said that. On the record, not realizing it was on the record, but on the record to Kuttner. And the, the other reason I know that this thing was, was intended as off the record, that's exactly how Bannon talks and how Bannon has talked when he thinks that a tape recorder isn't running or that a journalist isn't about to publish what he's saying. The gratuitous attacks on his internal enemies like Conan Mnuchin, which he had in that interview, the you know hilarious belittling of these you know goofball, all-right losers who are great Trump fans helping his movement, but he really regards as I think most normal people regard as just this pathetic subspecies of, you know, internet troll. But he encouraged them at Breitbart because they swelled his numbers and built his community. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they I mean, had he really energy. Encouraged them. He didn't just like no, 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 play no, no, footsie no. He didn't them. just encourage them. I mean, he, he actively as, lured yeah. them over right. from like the depths of gaming boards by hiring Milo Yiannopoulos mm-hmm. and, and making Breitbart a kind of political haven for these guys. Because as he said to me in the book, he thought they have monster power. That was his phrase. The idea that, you know, these guys, when motivated to do so, can have a real effect. And Bannon's belief had always been that the rising generation of conservatives were more populist and more web savvy. Uh, in distinction to the aging geriatric Fox News base, and that in order to project his populist nationalist policies, that was where the locus of energy in the party was going to be. This is the rising generation of conservatives. And so, yes, he went to a great deal of effort to get these guys involved in Breitbart and politics and Trump and in attacking the mainstream media, which is the other you know preoccupation that Bannon has. Yeah. And as I was saying yesterday on the show, if there was anything good to uh, Trump standing up for Confederate statues or the neo-Nazis or talking about Antifa, like, why would that work? I was saying, why would that work with someone in Wisconsin whose great-grandfather might have been shot at by one of Robert E. Lee's troops? And the answer is, well, maybe that person doesn't really give a darn, but it just scans to them as un-PC. He's fighting PC. But then when you're actually talking about this woman being killed and these images that that person sees on the screen, it stops being a low-grade un-PC issue. Yeah, Trump's taken on political correctness and starts being more really about Nazis and the KKK, and it stops working for that Trump voter. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with you. And and this is what's so disturbing about Trump's encouragement of these guys, you know, this winking tacit approval of their behavior and their worldviews and their marches, even if he himself isn't an anti-Semite mm-hmm. or racist, and, and who knows, maybe he is, right? It's that these kinds of people feel emboldened. They feel as though they have recognition and a voice and per, even permission in a sense. And they get so wrapped up in their own kind of like sad, empty causes that they're willing to go further and further than they would in an ordinary political climate until you have something like you had with uh, Heather Heyer in Charlottesville, and she's actually killed by one of these guys. Yeah. Is there any way that Trump could go off script and nationalistic, which are the two things he did with Charlotte, where Bannon will ever fault him? No. Bannon wants him to do both those things. Go off script all the time because that deepens his brand and and signals that he hasn't been captured by the swamp. And nationalism is what Bannon wants. I mean, the points in this presidency where Bannon has been most despondent 
are the points where Trump has been listening to people like Jared Kushner and Ivanka and Gary Cohn, right? There was a there was a, a, a famous quote that Trump gave in August where, you know, he was he was getting kind of globalist curious. And some journalist mm-hmm. at a press conference asked him, Well, are you you said in the campaign you're national are you a nationalist or globalist? And Trump's answer was, Well, I'm both. I'm a nationalist and I'm a globalist. I I, I Bannon, I'm sure, was pulling his hair out when he heard that because you can't be both. He's a chaos candidate. Bannon in the book many references to how Bannon feels like he thrives in chaos. So does does Bannon think Trump is screwing up whenever these huge kerfuffles happen? Or does he secretly think this is good, this is what we want? He, the latter, very much so. This is good, that this is what we want, that they're activating their base, that they're getting excitement. I think also there's a personal element of whether when Trump, like Trump personally gets fired up and really into it when he's got one of these kerfuffles going because all the guy really wants to do is fight in, in, in a way that is is like catnip to cable news, right? And so here you are right now making the most cable news friendly debate you can. You know, oh, should we tear down these conservative statues or not? And it's about culture and history and racial resentment and all the things that fire such you know heated anger and debate on cable TV, on talk radio. That's what Trump likes. That's, what's, that's what Bannon likes. What I don't ever understand with Bannon is how that translates into positive accomplishments. I just it, it seems like sowing chaos for its own sake. And I just don't see what that gets you in the long term. Where does Bannon fall in Trump's hierarchy of uh, virtues? He really pre- prizes loyalty. But it seems like he wants a guy like Lewandowski to be a lickspittle. But he's not looking for that from Steve Bannon. Maybe he doesn't want to be, you know, opposed by Bannon, but no, 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 he doesn't but, need Bannon to be obs- as obsequious as it seems no, no, like no. he needs many of his other advisors to be. Bannon, in, in, in Trump's eyes, Bannon is a higher life form than Lewandowski. He 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 is several evolutionary leaps forward. Um, he is intensely loyal. Yes, he is willing to go out and be a soldier. Yes, um, but he's also a guy who has succeeded in business in life. Is is a kind of an you know steak eating alpha male of of the type that Trump would like and admire and respect, uh, whereas guys like like Lewandowski and Dave Bossy are these you know on, on some level just these kind of buffoonish yes men who are the type that usually surround Trump. Um, so so I I do think he has more respect for Bannon, and I think he also appreciates Bannon's ability to manipulate the media. To give him, you know, storylines and causes and debates and frameworks and strategic arguments. And you can go back to the campaign, and of course, this is all delineated in the book. But the Megyn Kelly fight that Bannon and Breitbart waged on his behalf, uh, the Access Hollywood thing, where Bannon was the guy who came out with the, up with the idea, "Hey, let's march out these Clinton accusers and just blow everybody's mind and change the whole cable news story, cause ultimate chaos." But chaos in a way that's actually going to help you, Donald Trump, because now the story will be not 100% how you're a disgusting groper who attacks women. Now it'll be 50-50 that and the whole new thing that we're going to bring in, and you can use this to attack Hillary and so on and so forth. Nobody in Bannon, nobody in Trump's universe except Bannon would ever come up with those ideas. And the fact that they worked well during the campaign, I think, is what gave Bannon his standing in Trump's eyes. Right. In the Kuttner interview, Bannon says, hey, let's have this debate about race. Well, we're always going to win if they make it on race. That could have come exactly from one of the quotes in your book. But at some point, is does he become wrong about that? I don't know. To me, this is less of a crazy Bannon gambit than some of the other stuff. I mean, we, we have talked both in interviews for the book and since then, Bannon and I have, about 
uh, the future of the left. And he has the view, which I think might be right, that the further Democrats and liberals go toward identity politics and sort of sort, you know, policing what you can and can't say and what is allowable, the more they alienate you know, this core group of people who used to be Democrats but are not anymore, you know, blue collar, working class, not even necessarily white, though I imagine they're predominantly white, uh, people who would be attracted to populist economic ideas um, – but who are put off by this intense fixation on race, religions, gender, you know, all, all the kind of panoply of lefty issues. And Bannon's way of explaining what happened in the election is that that's what happened with Clinton, that everybody was so busy wagging their fingers uh, at people who didn't support Clinton and calling them a misogynist. The Democrats essentially ceded the battlefield on issues of economic populism and nationalism, leaving these people to Trump, who is a very good messenger on these issues. I mean, mm-hmm. I give him credit for his ability to I mean, it was bullshit, but I mean, to to talk about how he's going to bring jobs back and make America great again. He spoke to those people. He activated them. They voted for him. They were a part of his coalition. What Bannon is saying in that quote is that I want the resistance to keep this up. Go further. Go more. Because all you're doing, you know, these voters might be disillusioned right now because Trump hasn't delivered squat for them. But if you guys on the left keep along this issue there's still going to be ours for the taking come 2020 because you've got offered, you've offered nothing to them. And we may not have accomplished a lot, but you are actively repelling them with your, you know, goo goo lefty politics. Yeah. You know, I think someone like Joe Biden wouldn't disagree with him that much on that. I don't disagree with him that much. I mean, I'll, I'll get attacked left and right for it. Right. But it's true. And look, there are other people, you know, Mark Lilla has a wonderful book coming out, like basically making a, a higher brow version of this, a, an argument similar to Bannon that, that the left makes a mistake by going too far into identity politics and that it needs to return to something that has an appeal outside the academy, uh, outside left-wing websites and, and Bernie Sanders's crowd and can win back some of the people that the Democrats have lost over the last 10, 20 years that they're going to need, not just to win back the presidency, but to win uh, win voters in rural places and just non-urban places that right now they're not winning. Yeah, where the phrase white privilege doesn't have much purpose. Exactly. Um, give me a guide to, because every month, month and a half, we get a Bannon on thin ice story. Give me a guide as an expert to when to take those seriously. You know, it's never really clear to me. I mean, there there are a contingent of people in the White House, um, most of whose names are well known. You know, uh, Jared Kushner and Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin. The you know the people Bannon calls the globalists, who have had it in for him for a long time because they think he is uh, not only a divisive figure in the administration, but is a pernicious influence on Trump precisely because he encourages the kind of response like we've seen in Charlottesville. Then you add to that the fact that Bannon, um, who has a very grandiose image of himself as a political and historic figure, also wants to have influence. You mean a guy with a portrait of himself as Napoleon given to him by Nigel Farage in his office, has a grandiose image of himself as a historical figure? Which, according to my Twitter feed, is is the best detail in the book, or the the most tweeted detail (laughs) in the book was was Bannon's Nigel Farage painting. Uh, But but he's also somebody who thinks, even though he has no foreign policy experience at all, wants to have an effect. So he's gone to war with these generals, with Mattis and McMaster and it's this big uh, leak fight and policy debate within the White House, which, of course, has only caused more chaos. So there are so many people in there that want him out that every time something happens where it looks like Bannon could be blamed for it, 
you get these guys calling up reporters and saying, you know, Bannon's on really thin ice. I think I think some of this is true. The other indictment against Bannon, not to be too self-serving here, was that Trump was angry about my book. And as you mentioned, the fact that they're both on the cover and that, you know, somebody, Axios or somebody reported they get co-equal billing. And as, as a White House official pointed out to me, no, they don't get co-equal billing. Bannon's name comes first. Yeah. So I think Trump is angry about that attention and the idea that, the not incorrect idea that Bannon is often aggrandizing himself the way he did in this Kuttner interview, intentionally or otherwise. And that is not something you can do if you're a member of Trump's inner circle and survive for very long. Do you think he's planting any breadcrumbs to make Donald Trump think, if I get rid of this guy, it will come back at yes. me so hard? So yes. Like what? Yeah. One of the themes that you read in the news is that, you know, there's a lot of fear in the White House. If, if, if Bannon were to leave, that he would go scorched earth against Trump, that he's you know Trump's authentic connection to the base and so on and so forth. I, I think that that is designed to instill maybe not fear, but a kind of pause in Trump before he gets rid of him. The one thing Trump really does care about viscerally is his connection to this base of just diehard Trump people. Trump wants to be worshipped and genuflected to, you know, and there's what, like 25, 30 percent of America that is perfectly willing to do that no matter what. And Trump just loved this. He doesn't want to lose it. I think these stories, and I'm, I, I would suspect, I don't know firsthand, but I would suspect that Bannon has a, a hand in planting them, or at least in kind of fanning the storyline, that if you fire Bannon, this base will turn against you, is one of the reasons why he hasn't been ousted, why Trump hasn't seen fit to kind of kick him to the curb yet. Now, maybe he will by the time we finish this podcast because of the Cutner interview and the various other offenses. But look, I mean... It, Trump is a guy who fixates incessantly on his poll numbers. He doesn't talk about them anymore because they suck. Yeah. But back in the campaign, I mean, I interviewed him, all he would talk about is a poll. He is aware of how unpopular he is, and I'm sure he is worried that he could become more unpopular if he ousts Bannon. Right, rather than say it is because of Bannon and the ideas he put in my head that caused me to be so unpopular. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 Trump wouldn't think he that would way. And plus, that. Trump can do no wrong, you know, so it's not like yeah. there's a lot of introspection right. going on there. So this is the last big question, and I think you crack that nut uh, I guess pun intended, but I understand why a guy would want to wear cargo shorts or dress <laughs> slovenly, but why does he always dress with three shirts? Why all the layers? I've never been able to figure that out. Like, does he have like a body temperature thing where he's always cold? But I never see him taking like... off the outer two layers. No, he, no, he no, wears no, no. two he... collared shirts and a t-shirt yeah, most no, of no. the time. He'll wear a t-shirt and like two polo shirts, like one on top of the <laughs> yes. other and then an Oxford Never on top of that? Never seen it. I don't have any idea. It's the, it's the weirdest sartorial style I've ever encountered. Joshua Green is the author of Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. It's called Devil's Bargain. Thank you, Josh. Thanks so much. And now the spiel. H.R. McMaster, it has been said on this show by Admiral James Stavridis, in fact, is doing his duty. In fact, he might see going out and making statements to excuse Donald Trump's divulging of their to four classified intel to the Russians during a meeting. He might see that act as kind of a patriotic sacrifice. He's spending down his reputation a bit to stay between Donald Trump and a terrible decision that could be made by Donald Trump. Maybe that's the case. 
But let us just take at face value General McMaster, still active duty, the president's national security advisor, and he's been making some seriously specious arguments. He was on ABC's This Week, This Week. I will play an entire Q&A between him and host George Stephanopoulos. But your predecessor, Susan Rice, wrote this week that the U.S. could tolerate nuclear weapons in North Korea the same way we tolerated nuclear weapons in the, so- in the Soviet Union far more during the Cold War. Is she right? No, she's not right. And I think the reason she's not right is that the classical deterrence theory, how does that apply to a regime like the regime in North Korea, a regime that that engages in unspeakable brutality against its own people, uh, a, a regime that poses a continuous threat uh, to its neighbors in the region and now may pose a threat, direct threat to, to the United States with weapons of mass destruction, a regime that, that imprisons and murders anyone who seems to oppose the, that regime, including members of his own family, using sarin nerve gas, gas in, a, in, a, in a public airport. Last part first, maybe I'm missing something, or maybe McMaster was revealing details of the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the dictator's half-brother. But that is not what happened. He wasn't killed by sarin. He was killed by VX. It wasn't a gas. It was VX, a nerve agent that's liquefied. It's a small detail, but it punctuated a large flaw in thinking. McMaster laid out all the reasons why the North Koreans couldn't be deterred. But those reasons could all apply to the USSR, each and every one, a country which was deterred. I understand why a member of the administration wouldn't want to admit, in fact, it's not good strategy to say, yeah, we could live with them getting missiles. But the reasoning is horrible. It's so unsound. And here's why I've been thinking about this. The president on military matters surrounds himself with capable people. Thank God. He doesn't do that with any other matters. But still, when it comes down to it, on the military, more so than domestic matters, it is his call. The guy could blow a gasket and order a strike. Now, we think he won't. We hope he won't. But I've been thinking and noticing that that same strain of logic was put to the test during the Charlottesville debacle. It's been said, I agree. Well, what did America expect? Trump told us who he was. Trump told us what he was going to do. How could we be surprised? This was exactly how he campaigned. Well, can't all those statements be applied to North Korea? I mean, if there is a strike, if hundreds of thousands of people die, would we be out of line to say, well, how could you be shocked? Or this is who he was. It's inherently shocking to order the deaths, essentially, of all those people. But what he said about Charlottesville was also inherently shocking. The only unshocking thing about Charlottesville is that he's Donald Trump, but he's Donald Trump when it comes to North Korea. Has Donald Trump done anything to disabuse us of the idea that there is any line he won't cross? Maybe it's just this, that using nuclear weapons, declaring war on a near nuclear state with artillery aimed at Seoul has so much higher stakes than rhetoric around Charlottesville. But to Donald Trump internally, do the two issues feel differently? Can he think about them clearly as so different? Are we sure that he gets the difference, that he will process whatever happens with the North Koreans as much different than any other piece of stimuli that his central nervous system reacts to, anything else that irks him, anyone that questions him, anyone or anything that makes him feel foolish? And doesn't Kim Jong-un do that? Does Trump know Kim Jong-un is in a different category of belligerent than Mika Brzezinski or Richard Blumenthal? 
God damn, I hope so. And that we're not looking back at two smoldering countries and asking, as we are with Charlottesville, why are you surprised? And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Chris Berube. His favorite Steve Bannon jam is Torchbearer. Duck Commander Phil Robertson makes a compelling argument on the absurdity of life without God. Daniel Schrader's favorite Steve Bannon jam, The Steam Experiment, executive producer Steve Bannon, a deranged scientist locks six people in a steam room and threatens to turn up the heat if the local paper doesn't publish his story about global warming. Mary Wilson, just producer's favorite Steve Bannon jam, is Battle for America, a searing look at the ongoing conflict between constitutional conservatives and an out-of-touch, arrogant, and ever-expanding central government. Very fair, very even-handed. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, enjoys from the Steve Bannon oeuvre, Fire from the Heartland, the awakening of the conservative woman. The gist, our favorite Steve Bannon jam, the jacuzzi bathtub destroyed by acid. Oh, not a movie he produced, just an actual bathtub he owned. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>